0: Well, here we are. Happy New Year. And I don't know if you are like me, as you think about the new year, um, we think about resolutions. Um, We think about all the things that we wanted to do last year that maybe we weren't consistently doing or we weren't successful. And we're going to try it again. Um, There's something to be said about having a new day Uh, God's mercy is new every morning. And so with the new year, we think about commitments like eating healthy, maybe. Or we think about exercising, uh, maybe getting a gym membership or renewing that. Um, Having a partner to go with you to the gym so that you can stay with it. Or just to be generally more disciplined. And one of the things that we need to think about as a church is what about our spiritual disciplines, Maybe you've thought through how you're going to read through the Bible this year, which would be a great goal. But what about our prayer lives? Have you thought about that? If I was to poll our church, and myself included, I think we would say in summary that prayer is challenging, right? We don't see our prayer lives as successful as we want them to be. And so there's room for for growth. And so this new year comes, and we think, okay, maybe this is the year that I will have a better prayer life, that I can grow in this way. Or maybe you're the exact opposite of that. Maybe you've said, I've tried this all before. I'm tired of resolutions. I never stick with it. And so I'm just not going to commit to anything. And I'm just going to see what happens, right? More of a free spirit approach. Either way, I think we have to come to the conclusion that prayer is hard, right? But it's also rewarding. It's our response to God and his word, the way that he has spoken to us, we respond back through prayer. And so our job today, as we study his word, is to think through what prayer would look like. I think most of us have trouble feeling like our prayer lives are successful Because on the one hand, maybe we try to structure everything, we make it a checklist, and it becomes mechanical, right? Or maybe you're the exact opposite of that, and you're like, I'm just going to pray for what comes. Whatever comes to mind, I'm going to pray as I come to situations, I'm going to lift them up to God, and we leave it unstructured, and our minds end up wandering. We're very easily distracted, and we can't focus, or we just don't pray. As you know, and I know, there are many resources out there for us to use to learn how to pray. Books, types of praying, even acronyms. Maybe you know of ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication, which is great. It's just a different type of prayer, uh, each representing a different type of prayer. But even that, we don't stay committed to it. Or maybe it becomes stale. And so the question isn't, Do we need to pray? We know we need to pray, but how should we pray? How are we going to improve in this area of our life so that we can get to know God better and encourage one another, right? So what should be our focus? I think much of our prayer today is about what is closest to us. We think about our circumstances or maybe some trials that we're going through, Or whatever consumes our thought life. Lord, help me get through holidays with my family, right? Or maybe you're thinking, give me safe travels, or the semester is starting back at school, or your kids are going back to school, right? Help me get to that point where they're back in school. Or maybe it's, give me a new job this year. Help me have a new place to live, or help me find a spouse, God. All of these things are good things, and we should pray for them. But if that's the only things that we pray for, then we're going to miss out on our greater good. In fact, our greatest good. The Lord may grant some of those things, or he may not. And so, depending on how he responds to our demands, our faith will either be weak or strong. But God gives us certain promises, certain guarantees that he is committed to giving us. And that is what he wants us to focus on as we pray. For instance, he says that he will give of himself to us in a personal relationship that he will be our God and we will be his people. And so as we learn to pray and we improve in this way and we plan and we strategize and we think, how can we pray? we deepen our relationship with God by focusing on these types of promises. Tim Keller has written a new book on prayer, and I think he helps us to summarize by saying, it is remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for changes in their circumstances. He does not see prayer as merely a way to get things from God, but as a way to get more of God Himself. Paul's example of a prayer filled life helps us to know that we too will be brought closer to God in prayer and experience that relationship with more joy. And furthermore, we need to realize that deciding to pray or not, being committed to it or not, is not an option. It's not optional. We are in a state, we're not in a neutral state of being where we can coast. We are in a battle. The stakes are high and the struggle is serious, but God does not leave us without the correct equipment. John Piper, in a sermon on prayer, gives a helpful analogy. He says, Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie not a domestic intercom. It exists, prayer exists, for advancing the mission, not for calling the butler to turn up the thermostat. Not that God is opposed to practical, nitty-gritty, daily prayers, but he simply wants all of them to relate to the mission of your life, that his name be glorified, and that people live for fruitful ministry. And prayer is our serious line of defense in this battle that is being waged. Paul says so in Ephesians 6, later on in the letter that we're going to study. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces in the heavenly places. So I don't know about you but I want to grow in prayer. I want to do battle. I want us to be a people of prayer. And God wants us to pray. So what can help us to be a people of prayer this year? What will help me pray better for you this year? Let's look at Paul's prayer, one of his two prayers in the book of Ephesians. And let's unpack it as a model for us as we try to grow in prayer. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 3. If you don't have a Bible, they're in the middle aisle here, and it's on page 977. And if you would, please stand in honor of God's Word. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, So you will see in the outline, we have two points today that I'm going to cover. The first is going to be unpacking Paul's prayer. What are the main pieces of his prayer? How does he build and string these things together? And how should we take that as a, a model for our prayers? That's part two, okay? So be thinking, what does he pray for? How does he pray? Why does he pray? And we're specifically going to be taking each one of these pieces of his prayer, and breaking those down, okay? So let's look at how Paul threads his prayer together. First, we're going to start with the end in mind, or the goal, and work backwards, okay? So think about how Paul builds his prayer like blocks, one on top of each other, and it's connected by these statements that, or so that. And the goal of Paul's prayer, as he writes here, is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Just stop and think about that for a minute. The fullness of God. What does that mean? Paul prayed this as the end for which he prayed for the Christians in Ephesus. This church that he had planted, he was concerned with finding these believers complete in Christ. And being filled with the fullness of God, What does that mean? Paul is praying this for them. What does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? One commentator puts it simply as Paul's way of saying to be all that God wants you to be, or to be spiritually mature. And so he's praying in this way, or said another way, Paul is praying that we are fully satisfied in God. And this is having fullness of God, being overwhelmed by awe and wonder. What does it look like practically, though, to be filled with the fullness of God? Practically speaking, it means that we are not anxious, nor apathetic, nor discontent, and we are not seeking happiness merely in our circumstances. And that is a result of us being satisfied in God there is a fullness and a completeness to God and friends we are praying for each other that we can experience that in greater measure think about that the fullness of God doesn't that boggle your mind I spent all week thinking how can we connect with this and I think it will take the rest of our lives to do so. But a small example of that would be, think about us standing at the foot of Mount Everest. For those of you who don't know, Mount Everest is 29,000 feet above sea level. That's five and a half miles high. And being a former runner, I don't run as much anymore, that's a good amount of distance. That is a long way, right? 29,000 feet. And you're standing at the bottom and you're looking up. And you can't even see the top of it because the clouds are hanging lower than the peak of the mountain, right? It would create in you a sense of awe and wonder. I've never been at the foot of it, but I've seen it on TV and it's amazing. Isn't it? Any mountain gives us that sense, right? And we're overwhelmed by the majesty and the beauty and the power that is represented by the mountain. And we are also reminded of our smallness. It's said that if you wanted to climb Mount Everest, it would take years of training. Again, I'm no technical climber. But you have to have technical expertise, and life and death is on the line, right? People take years of training to get themselves physically in shape, to be trained well enough to climb and reach the summit. And statistically, they say for every 10 summits, there's one death trying to reach the summit. This is awe-inspiring, right? This is wow, And we are supposed to get the same sense in Paul's prayer that we would be filled with the fullness of God. But, in the same way, it's not that we're just going to climb Mount Everest, but we're going to study it. We're going to know the routes to take. We're going to know the mountain inside and out. And in much the same way, to be filled with the fullness of God is to know God inside and out. And to have a bit of this majesty and holiness be connected with relationship and intimacy. You see, Paul writes in this prayer that being filled with the fullness of God is majestic and totally outside of our control and our power. But he also speaks in language that shows intimacy and a relationship much like a husband knows his wife. You see it in the passage where he talks about being strengthened in our inner being and Christ dwelling in our hearts. And so we must ask, how could I possibly know something so intimately that is so holy and majestic that would be otherwise unknowable to us? And the answer is God must give this to us and we must pray for each other as Paul prayed that we would be filled with the fullness of God. The next step, tracing it back in Paul's reasoning, is if we want our friends to know the fullness of God, what would we need to pray for them? For Paul, this idea of fullness comes as a result of something else that he prays. And he uses these two statements in his prayer, talking about knowing the fullness of God. It is to comprehend and to know the love of Christ. Fullness of God depends on a new perception of God's love. It isn't merely having good theology or a good education a lot of experience, or the right traditions. Paul is saying that this is not possible without having power to understand the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. We will not have the fullness of God until we know love. Limitless love. Now what I want you to see about this part of Paul's prayer is this. The driving power that makes fullness possible, the power only possessed by God and given to us as a gift is a power of perception. How do we see and savor and love what we see? It's the power to understand what God has done for us. Seeing this beauty, the beauty of the gospel, the height and depth, the length and width, of God's love. Tasting it and loving it is what draws us into relationship with God and it makes self-killing and sin-killing possible. When you have a new perception of God's infinite love for us, it gives us power to overcome sin. I don't know about you, but I need that. I want to fight sin in this way. I want to put to death the self-life. When you see what God has done in Jesus, you respond to God and other people and your circumstances, no matter whether they are good or bad, in a different way. And seeing it comes only by God's power. So Paul prays and we need to as well. We need to grasp. We need help to grasp his love for us. This is not a prayer that we would love God more, right? So we are not asking that we would have more love for God, but rather to have a perception to know and grasp his love for us. There are many reasons why we don't grasp God's love for us. Let me give you a couple to to maybe help us apply this. But why don't we grasp God's love? What keeps us from doing so? What hinders us? One reason is an overwhelming shame from sin. Maybe it's a sin struggle that you keep on fighting with and you can't seem to overcome. Another reason might be that we're confronted with or we have to endure suffering. Maybe even when we face death, whether it's our own or someone close to us. Or finally, another reason, maybe we don't think we need God's love at all, that we can be self-sufficient and our pride keeps us from grasping God's love for us, that we had nothing good in of ourselves and God gave us everything in Christ. So these reasons help us to understand why we don't grasp God's love. And we need to pray that we would, that God would help us to grasp it. And when we begin to grasp the limitless love of God that God has for us, and our perception is keenly aware of this love, then our speech and our thoughts, our actions, and our reactions are all transformed. Think about God's promise in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you believe that? I am fully convinced that if we believe this promise and we are confident in it, How could we not stake our entire life on God's love? We would risk it all. Now, this new perception in the text here tells us that we can't do it on our own. There's this phrase, with all the saints. So this grasping of love, Paul knows, will not happen without each other. We can't do it on our own. It needs a community. It needs the church. And John Stott sums it up perfectly when he said, It needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. It needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. So Paul proclaims that in order to be filled with the fullness of God, We need strength to comprehend and know God's love, this limitless love that is in the gospel, and have a new perception. So how do we develop, Paul, this perception? Look at the phrase before. He says, By Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. Christ dwells in our hearts so that we know how we've been loved. We couldn't do it without it. If we pray, if we want to pray for each other towards fullness of God, we need to pray for knowledge and this perception of God's love. And if we want each other to know God's love, we have to pray that Christ will dwell in our hearts. This prayer of Christ dwelling in our hearts is perhaps the most important prayer we could pray for each other. Do you pray this way? I invite you to. Because there is promise here that we will be filled with the fullness of God. Now, Christ dwelling in our hearts. Our heart. This idea that the Bible talks about, and Matt mentioned earlier, is the command center of our lives. Think about it as the will, our desires, our affections, basically what rules over our thoughts, words, and actions. Okay? And when we are converted or born again, when we come to a saving faith in Jesus, we are declared righteous. Yet, we have to grow into what we are declared to be. This is what occurs when Christ dwells in our hearts and when he is at the control of, center of our lives. Now, you may be saying, that seems so abstract, Matt. I can't get my mind around what that looks like. The heart controlling all of our thoughts, actions, and words. But consider this as an example. We all know and have seen these crazy sports fans, right? So think about the fact that these folks spend a lot of money on season tickets, right? And not only that, but they spend hours and hours before and after the game tailgating. They show up no matter what the weather. It can be super hot. It can be cold, rainy, snowy. And they, their cars are plastered with the team name. Even their bodies are painted. You, you know the people that I'm talking about, the overweight people that have letters on them. Um, they are ecstatic, though, when their team wins or even if they're rivals Loose, right? There's a, a, an excitement and a joy that comes from that. And what this reveals is what they truly love. And it's easy to laugh at those people, I do, but it gets real when we think that we all do this, maybe with a different area of our life. Maybe it's your career or maybe it's pursuing a spouse or maybe it is your marriage that you want to be perfect or having children or more kids. Whatever it may be, it's at the core of what we are and we live from that place and we have that as central to us. Another way to consider this is think about the first home that you might buy or did buy. And it's one of those that needs a lot of repair, a fixer-upper. I don't know about you guys, but HGTV has hundreds of shows about this kind of idea and where a couple wants their perfect home but on a pauper's budget, right? And so what they end up realizing is that they need to buy a house that is a fixer-upper. And these houses look terrible. Um, I don't know about you, but nobody wants to buy these houses. Uh, They're a mess. They're trashy. They've got old appliances. They've got old electrical. They've got walls that should come down and just ugly floral wallpaper from like the 70s. And it's just terrible. And so they work with a contractor to buy this fixer-upper and then replace all the HVAC and all of the lighting and everything else to make it look like something that they want it to be. This is the same way. And Carson, one of the commentators that I read on this, said, when Christ, by his Spirit, takes up residence within us, he finds the moral equivalent of mounds of trash, ugly wallpaper, a leaking roof. He sets about turning this residence into a place appropriate for him a home in which he is comfortable. There will be a lot of cleaning to do, quite a few repairs, and some much-needed expansion. But his aim is clear. He wants to take up residence in our hearts as we exercise faith in him. So friends, God's purpose for the church and each one of you and me is not simply believing the right truths, but to have a lifelong transformation that takes us all the way to heaven. And this, friends, requires prayer. We need each other. And so we ask, with Paul, the next step, how does Christ Christ dwell in our hearts? And he says, with power through his Spirit. This fourth phrase Power through His Spirit. We all know this, right? We need power. And God has it. The goal of Paul's praying is impossible in and of ourselves. What God is requiring of us must be God-given, or it will not be accomplished. The power that Paul is describing is power through the Spirit. The nice thing is, You can refer back to Matt's sermon a few weeks ago on John 14 to get a more detailed look at this. But Jesus tells us in John 14 that he is promising to send the Spirit, that he's going to dwell in us so that we can obey God out of love. He says, Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and my Father will give you another helper. What's beautiful about that, and what Matt talked about, was that all of this comes from an Old Testament text, Ezekiel 36. It's a great place to spend some time thinking about what this Spirit does, and what this power will do in us. So let me summarize it by saying this, for believers... The Spirit has exchanged our heart of stone for a heart of flesh. That is a miracle. That is what we need for any of this to happen. And when he did that, his power is now at work in us to change from the inside out what we love. So without this, Christ cannot dwell in our hearts and we will not have a new perception of God's love for us no matter how hard we try. Briefly, I want to add here that Paul says in the inner man. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that but I do want to touch on it because I think what Paul is getting at is that though we see outside of us And we all see it in our own bodies. The outer man is fading away. So we deal with illness and disease and old age and ultimately death. But what Paul is getting at, what he's praying, the target of his prayer, is that the inner man, though we see that, is being renewed. That is power. And that only happens with the Spirit. So why is Paul praying in the first place? He starts this whole prayer by saying, For this reason I bow my knees. So friends, we need power. We need the Spirit's power. We need to have Christ dwell in our hearts. We need this new perception, this new sense, this new taste of God's love for us. And all of this so that we might be filled to the fullness of God. Keep in mind this connection between majesty, awe, and holiness, and intimacy and relationship. Our God relates to us. And that's what he says. Paul begins by saying, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. In the immediate verse before this, we see the context. Paul is imprisoned, actually. He's suffering a great deal, and in fact, he's facing his own death. And if you read that verse, he says what? Do not lose heart, friends. You see my suffering, but it's for your glory. Do not lose heart. Do not be distracted or confused by this suffering. It is to be expected. And Paul actually doesn't care about his own suffering, because he wants them to have more of God. Do not lose heart. And for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. Paul, to them, this church, and to us, he's an apostle. He planted this church. He is a model for them and for us. He is the one that they looked up to. And he is a father to them in the faith. So you could see... Why they might be discouraged to see him suffer. And so Paul prays and he refocuses their attention on being filled in the fullness of God. If you get nothing else, listen here. The goal of our holiness. The goal, rather, is our holiness, not our comfort. God delights more in the integrity and purity of his church than in the material well-being or reputation of its members. He wants us to pursue daily death, not self-fulfillment, for the latter leads to death, while the former leads to life. And this is, we come to him as our father, the one who loves us and has adopted us and knows what we need and gives us gladly everything that we need. And so point two, and we've got to do this quickly, is Paul praying, praying Paul's prayer. How do we do that? What does that look like for us? It's going to look five things, and I'm going to pray them for us. Okay. First, the fullness of God. We're going to pray that we are content and satisfied in God, lacking nothing. Our longings for a better job or a spouse or more kids or more money would pale in comparison to knowing all that we have in God. Perception of God's love. We see it in the cross and we apply it to our hearts. He didn't spare his own son and he sacrificed greatly, so that we might have a relationship with him. So our perception isn't determined by the love we receive from others, our parents, a spouse, or friends. We pray that we would know God's love rightly. Thirdly, Christ dwelling in our hearts. Every day is a battle. Do we want to be in control or do we want to let Christ be in control? And every day we need to die to self and give that up. And so we pray for that. And we find a deep, abiding joy in trusting Christ. He is a better ruler of our lives than we are. Fourthly, power of the Spirit in the inner being. While the outer man is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed day by day. Though we see circumstances around us that are discouraging, we know that our hope is secure. We know that God's love is real because the power of the Spirit is working in us. This same power that raised Jesus is at work in us. And we pray to our Father. We are adopted as children, needy children, but He knows exactly what we need and He loves to give us what we need. And so will you commit to pray this way with me? Let's see how God responds and answers these prayers. Let's see how we can fight sin and grow in holiness. How we can be sustained in suffering and equip us to do battle until Christ returns to establish his reign completely and finally. Will you take up the wartime walkie-talkie with me and go to battle for me, for each other? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have promised to give us the fullness of God. All that You are for us is to be ours. We are going to grow into that fullness when we see that You have loved us infinitely Help us to taste and see it and to love it and to live out of it. It's only, pow- it's only possible, Father, if your Spirit's power is at work in us. So we ask that you would come and do that. Dwell in our hearts. Have the power of the Spirit in us that we would be satisfied in you and you in lo, because we know and trust that you are our Father who gives us exactly what we need now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen